service. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rockerola. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about Lindsay Lohan are insane. She was arrested for back-to-back DUIs only weeks apart when her career was at its peak. She appeared in court 20 times before four different judges in the span of five years. Her arrest record is overcrowded with charges involving theft, cocaine, and the transportation of narcotics. She made choices that literally put her in the Los Angeles County morgue. But before the one-time Disney star left her teen queen years behind and plunged into adult-level debauchery, Lindsay Lohan made great films. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of Ada Jones singing Ring Ting-a-Ling in 1912. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to Gore Verbinski's Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End. And why would I play you that specific slice of Bill Nye beard tentacle cheese could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie on May 26, 2007. And that was the day that a drunk Lindsay Lohan lost control of her car on Sunset Boulevard and simultaneously lost control of her life. On this episode, DUIs, morgues, cocaine, overcrowded criminal records, and one-time teen queen, Lindsay Lohan. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, season four, Hollywoodland. You never forget the first time the world calls you a bad girl. Every time after that, the infractions blur together. Just like your vision is blurred. You squint your eyes, but all you see is Sunset Boulevard smeared across your windshield. 
Two manicured hands grip the wheel of your black Mercedes. It's a two-seater, but you've got two friends squeezed into the passenger side. The LED on the Mercedes dashboard flashes 5.30 a.m. Sunlight begins to chase away a reckless evening, and the sky brightens from black to blue. But you see little else. The liquor dulls your vision. It makes your fingertips buzz, your eyelids droop. That's all right. That's what the cocaine is for. Coke means you can stay awake longer and stomach more alcohol. Coke means more hours at Les Do, your choice of Hollywood Club from earlier that evening. From back before, when you could actually see straight. Back before, everything went sideways. Just a few blocks away on Las Palmas Avenue, the dim glow of candelabras at Les Do offered Hollywood's elite a place to relax. The intimate lounge functioned as a watering hole for the who's who of the 2000s, where celebs could mingle and misbehave freely. No paparazzi snaking onto the dance floor snapping candid photos, and no wannabes encroaching on your world-class social circles. Just you, the elite, and your taste for excess. Ledu corralled the lady shaping pop culture into one cozy room. Britney Spears, Paris Hilton, Nicole Richie, some budding reality TV star named Kim Kardashian, each woman with a drink in her hand. And that included Lindsay. Didn't matter that she was only 20 years old. She was Lindsay Lohan, teen queen turned underage A-lister. She got what she thirsted for when she thirsted for it. She could get around the drinking age, but she couldn't get around those drunk driving charges, which were about to smack her harder than the shrubs her Mercedes was racing towards. Lindsay had total control of the Mercedes when she left Ledoux that night, at least for one moment. It wasn't long until she lost total control. The curb leapt out in front of her. The Mercedes skidded over the side of the road. Her foot went down. Was she pressing the brake, the gas? She peeled straight into a neat line of shrubs. Branches snapped. The Mercedes tires ripped ruts in the grass. Metal peeled off the underbelly of the car, leaving a trail of debris for tourists to pocket and sell online the next day. Lindsay slammed a heel down and managed to catch the brakes this time, just before the car massacred any more of the lawn. The first rays of sunlight grazed the scene of the crime. Poor judgment was on display and it was lit up like a soundstage. Birds chirped and morning had broken. So had a car window. Lindsay Lohan was arrested on May 26, 2007 for suspicion of drunk driving and possession of cocaine. The accident should have been a frightening 5.30 a.m. wake-up call for America's sweetheart. Instead, she remained metaphorically asleep at the wheel. So maybe her second DUI, not even two months later, would do the trick. On July 24, 2007, Lindsay was technically a year older, but not a year wiser. She sped around Santa Monica in a car that wasn't hers with a pocket full of cocaine that most definitely was hers. For her second DUI, she blew two breathalyzer tests, 0.12 and 0.13, well over the legal limit of 0.08. Double the disgrace, double busted. Lindsay left the scene in handcuffs, arrested on five counts this time, two counts of driving under the influence, plus driving with a suspended license, possession of cocaine, and transporting a narcotic. This was not the Lindsay Lohan headline that America expected. Up until 2007, Double Trouble for Lindsay Lohan meant starring in The Parent Trap, her breakthrough movie role from 1998. Roles, plural to be more accurate. 
Lindsay's co-star in the Disney remake was herself. She literally acted out two separate characters to create the illusion that the leading actresses were twins, just like the 15-year-old Haley Mills had done in a previous generation. Lindsay pulled it off at only 11 years old. Audiences fell for the spunky, freckled redhead. But spunky, freckled redhead girls were not supposed to get into car wrecks, especially after they climbed behind the wheel after drinking all night and blowing lines of coke. But even though she was now 21 years old, teen royalty still took a human form in Lindsay Lohan. Lindsay Lohan once dominated movie screens with six feature films in only seven years. She modeled for Calvin Klein and Ralph Lauren when she was only three years old. She was worth $17 million by the time she was 19. Her solo album, Speak Now, debuted at number four on the Billboard 200 and went platinum. Yes, platinum. She boasted a handbag collection worth $70,000 and once tore through 20 grand in 20 minutes at a luxury boutique. She was such a staple of pop culture that Mattel released a limited edition Lindsay Lohan My Scene doll. Lindsay never got her own show on the Disney Channel like fellow child stars Hilary Duff or Raven Simone. She was beyond that. But by the time she starred in Freaky Friday alongside Jamie Lee Curtis in 2003, her acting chops were on par with her legendary co-star. The shimmer in her eyes when she giggled, the sass packed into her teenage pouts. Lindsay had an arsenal of convincing facial expressions on lock. Audiences believed her when she was giddy over her crush. They suspended disbelief when she was indignant or remorseful towards her on-screen mother. Disney wasn't about to waste that kind of talent on the silver screen. So the studio secured their favorite raspy redhead for two more flicks, Confessions of a Teenage Drama Queen and Herbie Fully Loaded. But in between those squeaky clean Disney ventures, Lindsay made the movie that made her a true it girl of the 2000s and signaled clearly to all of her fans that her Disney days would soon be behind her. The same movie that remains arguably one of the most influential comedies since the turn of the century a movie that would continue a lineage of iconic teen girl movies like Heather's and Clueless before it. In 2004, Lindsay Lohan strolled the halls of North Shore High School as Katie Heron in Mean Girls. Katie ascends from clueless new student to teen royalty alongside the plastics, a clique of the hottest, cattiest, richest bitches you've ever seen. Rachel McAdams leads the pack of plastics as Regina George, the school's bully in chief. Regina etches scathing insults in her clique's infamous burn book. She wields a dictator-like power over her closest friends. She'll steal your boyfriend. She'll steal your crush, too, and start a rumor that you're gay while she's making out with him in a closet somewhere. Regina George is a certified life ruiner. Before Rachel McAdams was locked in to play the caddy queen bee, Lindsay Lohan expressed interest in the role. Producers shot her down. They knew what Lindsay was capable of, they wanted to see her transform, to go from an innocent newbie to a merciless brat capable of dismantling an ironclad clique. They didn't want Lindsay to start as the villain. They wanted to witness her become the villain, gradually, accidentally, without even noticing it, until she was wreaking havoc on her own life. Lindsay nailed the role, and for 97 minutes, she let her sweetness putrefy into savagery until she was personally victimized by her own choices. She nailed the good girl gone bad transition so well, in fact, that she would soon find her life imitating her art. And the limit did not exist. 
The gossip magazines were the first ones to point it out. Something was wrong with the August 2010 issue of GQ Germany, the cover story specifically. It all seemed normal at first. Cover girl Lindsay Lohan basked under golden rays of sun, sprawled out in an undisclosed tropical location that you probably couldn't afford. A guitar carefully placed in front of her bare chest and torso to keep her modest. But something was missing. Lindsay's near-nude photos had readers squinting, but not for the reasons you'd think. Fans poured over the camera angles. Haters called shenanigans. It was obviously a Photoshop hatchet job. Somehow, the conversation wasn't that Lindsay Lohan was wearing nothing but a guitar. There was another reason people had their noses wedged in that magazine. Where the fuck was she hiding that ankle bracelet? Lindsay Lohan had been sporting her newest accessory all summer, a fashion crime that she literally could not part with. The leading theory explained that it was tucked somewhere inside her sweaty Uggs. Those woefully out-of-season shoes served a functional purpose just like the guitar. They worked to hide something that most people don't like to share with the whole world. Five years earlier, Lindsay Lohan commanded trends with authority. In the 2000s, she had the car you wanted. She hoarded the designer bags you wanted. If you were Hillary Duff, she had the man you wanted. Fans played copycat and copped the same hot new accessories. Right up until that hot new accessory was an alcohol detecting device secured to her ankle. No one could confirm nor deny that Lindsay did, in fact, wear the bracelet during the GQ Germany photo shoot. They could confirm that it was still funny to speculate and mock celebrities in recovery. Lindsay even took her new accessory in stride and unironically requested stickers from Chanel to glam up her ankle. And when the legendary fashion house failed to brand her bracelet, Lindsay found other ways to deal with the chunky new burden. As the balmy Los Angeles summer stretched on, she wore long pants, bedazzled jumpsuits, and tall suede boots. Not exactly warm weather clothing. Everyone knew the reason. So technically, the UGG theory was entirely plausible. The irony, of course, was that the interview portion of the German GQ profile was directly related to why Lindsay had to saunter across red carpets with an ankle bracelet to begin with. In May of 2010, she spilled her distaste for news outlets in a candid chat at the Cannes Film Festival. Her interview with the GQ reporter lamented the media's way of meddling in her legal affairs. She spoke these words when she legally should have been back in Los Angeles, in court, of course. As Lindsay mingled with other movie stars into the wee hours at Cannes, she missed a vital court date regarding her failure to complete court-mandated alcohol counseling. Her probation and the court's good graces hinged upon the lingering requirement for her two DUIs in 2007. According to Lindsay, the reason she was still in France was because someone swiped her passport and she couldn't get home without it. Whether the culprit was a lost passport or excessive partying didn't matter. When Lindsay was absent from court on May 20th, the court released a warrant for her arrest and set her bail at $100,000. Lindsay forked over the hefty fee and appeared in court four days later. The gavel came down and the gloves came off. From now on, Lindsay would be subject to weekly drug tests and a drinking ban. An alcohol-detecting ankle bracelet would keep her honest and under surveillance. Under no circumstances could Lindsay remove the bracelet. Not for movies, not for photo shoots, even if it meant she couldn't get new work. Hence the whirlpool of rumors surrounding the GQ Germany shoot. At the end of May, authorities fitted Lindsay with a secure, continuous remote alcohol monitor, 
SCRAM bracelet for short. Think of it as a breathalyzer test that follows you around every day of your life, through good days worth toasting to and bad days worth forgetting with a bottle. Instead of breath, SCRAM bracelets use perspiration to determine if someone has consumed alcohol. As the user cruises through their day, the bracelet gathers data about their blood alcohol content using their sweat. If the person wearing the bracelet drinks any alcohol, the bracelet will go off and alert the manufacturer. And that goes for any alcohol. Anything from mouthwash to martinis could count as a violation of her terms. There were other factors to keep in mind, too. Ones that were harder to avoid than just refraining from a daily swish of Listerine. Large amounts of water could interfere with the bracelet's ability to record perspiration, which would legally be considered, quote, an attempt to defeat, unquote, the bracelet. You had to keep the bracelet dry at all costs. Showers were a gamble, baths were nearly impossible, and swimming was off the table entirely. Tampering with the bracelet was an automatic strike. If you attempted to remove the device or manipulate its ability to detect sweat, for instance, slipping a playing card in between your ankle and the device, alcohol monitoring systems were notified immediately. The ugly black brick attached to Lindsay's ankle did her acting career zero favors as well. It leached off her sweat and the remnants of her reputation. It flagged Lindsay's bad behavior. Worse, though, it made a statement. This person has an alcohol problem. This person racked up two DUIs, in case you forgot. Did you already forget? Unless she could keep her ankles fully covered at all times, Lindsay Lohan wouldn't be booking many new roles for the foreseeable future. But maybe a break from work was exactly what Lindsay needed, since she still had failed to attend enough court-mandated alcohol counseling sessions. She violated her probation for the most ridiculous, avoidable reason. The reason that Lindsay Lohan went to jail wasn't because she was an alcoholic. It wasn't because she slipped into the pool by accident and set off her scram bracelet. She went to jail because she couldn't follow through with her court-mandated obligations. On July 6, 2010, a judge sentenced Lindsay to 90 days in jail. 30 days for the first DUI, 30 days for the second, 30 days for reckless driving. Upon her release, she was to report to a rehabilitation facility for an additional 90 days. Lindsay sobbed through the sentence. The cyclone of chaos whirring around her slowed to a standstill. Wreckage dropped from the sky. The parties, the photo shoots, the clubs, the coke, the gossip, the theories, the temptation, and the ugly block glued to her ankle. She was about to get away from it all. The clink of her cell was the loudest noise Lindsay heard on July 20th, 2010, when cops carted her off to her own personal section of Century Regional Detention Facility in Linwood, California. Out with the ankle bracelet, in with the prison jumpsuit. On Wednesdays, we wear orange. Make that every day we wear orange. As she passed the merciless faces of fellow inmates on the way to her cell, Lindsay quickly thanked God, or whoever was up there, that she wasn't paired with a convicted rapist or murderer. Instead, the cellmate awaiting her was the antagonist tearing apart her life. Lindsay was placed in solitary confinement. The mean girl tormenting Lindsay Lohan was herself, Lindsay Lohan. There was no Regina George, no certified life ruiners to take the blame. Lindsay had to face that reality in solitary confinement because, frankly, there was no one else to face, nothing else to distract her from the truth. No bottles, no handbags, no club beats pounding on her eardrums. 
No tempestuous relationship with the DJ of the moment. Just silence. Lindsay hadn't heard silence in years, maybe even a decade. Silence is a privilege when you shoot six movies in seven years. It's even a privilege in rehab where obligations come in the form of group therapy and private sessions. Prison might be the only place where Lindsay Lohan couldn't famously miss an appointment. It might be the only place that could lend her a little perspective too. She made peace with her ugly orange jumpsuit. She embraced the silence. Then she started counting down the days. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Lindsay Lohan didn't have to count for very long. Like all wealthy superstars, she had a best friend she could count on. Someone who was there when the world turned its back on her. An entity that could spring her from prison with ease. Lindsay's best friend was overcrowding. The detention facilities in Los Angeles were supposedly so crammed with criminals that Lindsay was always the first candidate to walk free and make space for more inmates. When she went to jail in November of 2007 for allegedly punching a woman in the face after a Justin Bieber concert, overcrowding freed her after a total of 84 minutes on the inside. And again in August of 2010, when she served just two weeks of her aforementioned 90-day sentence in solitary confinement. And overcrowding saved her hide one more time in 2011, when Lindsay's sticky fingers pocketed a necklace worth $2,500 from a luxury boutique in Venice, California. The Los Angeles authorities put her under house arrest before she had to enter a prison cell. Overcrowding was Lindsay's get-out-of-jail-free card. It was supposed to make her life easier. But no matter how many freebies life handed her, Lindsay seemed hell-bent on making her criminal record as jam-packed as the California prison system. She appeared in court 20 different times between 2007 and 2012. A ridiculous amount of those instances can be attributed to neglecting court-mandated obligations. Failure to attend alcohol counseling sessions, blowing off community service, missing hearings. Lindsay's criminal record was overcrowded with this kind of nonsense. And by 2011, she had a hefty community service tab to settle. 480 hours of community service split between the Los Angeles Downtown Women's Center and the county morgue. Lindsay missed the first nine sessions at the Women's Center, so the judge took that option off the table, and Lindsay Lohan's choices literally put her in the morgue. November, 2011. Lindsay Lohan wrung out her mop once again, and the bucket of soapy water had turned a dingy shade of brown. She plopped the mop on the bathroom floor and sloshed it across the tiles, pushed dirt from one side of the room to the other, back and forth, mindless. She stretched out the chore for as long as possible so that maybe, just maybe, her shift would end before she got to the rank task of scrubbing toilets on her hands and knees. Her eyes flicked to her watch. 1.30 p.m. No such luck. Every ounce of glamour in Lindsay's life went down the drain when she was at the Los Angeles County Morgue. This was her new reality, at least twice a week, every week. Washing windows, collecting trash, scrubbing toilets, cleaning the floors. On one occasion, she even wheeled a body across the building. Whitney Houston's body. Lindsay was handpicked for the emotional assignment. 
as if only celebrities could handle the immense distress of rolling an icon to their autopsy. Well, that's what Lindsay told the Telegraph anyways. Just like her tendency for missing obligations and writing secret fuck yous on her fingernails to the photographers in court, she had a knack for spewing wild lies too. The LA coroner's office was quick to clarify that no one in the probation program was in contact with Whitney Houston's body. No matter what Lindsay Lohan told people, no matter how she tried to add a little pizzazz to her shitty situation, she was just there to make the place clean. To impress who, she had no idea. It's not like this is late do, not as if the morgue was somewhere people meet up for a good time. Lindsay returned the dirty mop to the bucket with a sigh. Ledu had already bid adieu to LA by 2011. Lindsay's days of elite ragers on Las Palmas Ave were done. Not that she was even sure she could even get an invite anymore. She had gone from it girl to punchline. As for the club, it shuttered after four years in business. That's equivalent to like 50 years in Hollywood club time. It was the end of an era, one that coincidentally closed out the peak of tabloid fever and embraced oversharing on social media instead. The dirty aughts were dead. Dead as the dozens of people Lindsay tiptoed by every day at the morgue. The young, the old, the terminally ill. As they wheeled by her, something underneath those white sheets seemed to whisper to her. What if? What if you had wrapped your Mercedes around a tree? What if your liver was a touch less resilient? What if you had overdosed on that Coke? Hey, what if you cut the shit? Something in the morgue spoke to Lindsay Lohan. Maybe it was the humble nature of the janitorial work. Maybe it was Whitney Houston's ghost. But in a twist that no one could have predicted, Lindsay made the Los Angeles County morgue her priority. She dutifully unclogged toilets and logged all her community service hours for the next four months. Nearly five years after her back-to-back -back DUIs, Lindsay's felony probation ended in March of 2012. No more ankle bracelets. No more forced community service. No more trips to court about ankle bracelets and forced community service. Lindsay Lohan's schedule just opened back up. It was time to make movies again. Her fist slammed into the first hotel room door she spotted over and over, each slam louder than the last. No answer. She pounded on the neighboring door, another dud, then another, and then another. The guests at the Hotel Orlando weren't going to get any shut-eye tonight. Not if Lindsay Lohan had anything to say about it. He had to be in here somewhere. She knew it. She could feel it in her gut. Her fists thundered on every door until she found it. The room of Paul Schrader, director of a new micro-budget film noir called The Canyons. The same film Lindsay had just been fired from. Lindsay wailed from the other side of the door. She pressed her face to the peephole. Schrader had to see it her way. It was all a misunderstanding. She swore she wanted this leading role. She was so devoted to this movie that she was up until 3 a.m. the previous night dissecting the script. How's that for dedication? It's just that, you know, she needed a sleeping pill before bed and it knocked her out. And she slept right through her call time. But it was just because she was so committed. Paul Schrader saw it differently. He viewed her absence as proof that Lindsay Lohan was still a flake, with or without a bottle in her hands. He didn't budge from his decision. He didn't even open his door. When brute force failed her, Lindsay switched to virtual harassment. 
She blew up Schrader's phone. And she got her answer in a single blue message bubble. Lindsay, go home. She erupted. Her sobs seeped through the thin walls of the Hotel Orlando. And her performance was apparently convincing enough for Paul Schrader to change his mind and rehire her shortly thereafter. True, she was unreliable. But if you could make Lindsay Lohan show up to set on time, she was outstanding. That, and honestly, her replacement kind of sucked in comparison. The Canyons was supposed to be Lindsay's first serious role in years. Her first real movie, too. Nothing goofy like Scary Movie 5, and definitely not the made-for-lifetime TV fodder about Liz Taylor. Lindsay longed for another Mean Girls, another Georgia Rule, something mature, cheeky even, but definitely not a joke. No more playing the role of a punchline. When the producers of the Canyons approached her earlier that year, she felt like it was 2004 all over again. Someone wanted her to star in a noir thriller. A noir thriller directed by Paul Schrader, the guy who wrote Taxi Driver, Raging Bolt, Last Temptation of Christ. He was Scorsese at Jason. There was potential in this fledgling micro-budget flick. She would have been a fool to turn the role down. Not just because of the pedigree of people like Paul Schrader, but because no one else wanted to hire her. Lindsay Lohan was a liability few production companies could afford. When making blockbusters, businesses purchase insurance policies for their leading actors, lest they fall ill or worse, die and can't complete the movie. As someone who cycled in and out of court, prison and rehab, the cost of Lindsay's policy would have been astronomical. But the Canyons didn't have any insurance at all, so it wasn't an issue. What the movie did have was a budget of $250,000 peanuts. And that didn't stop Lindsay from demanding a million bucks up front. Director Paul Schrader and the producers came back with a counteroffer. $100 per day for her three weeks on set. Take it or fuck off. And that number was literally the minimum pay for Screen Actors Guild members, plus a share of the profits, assuming there were any. And there was another catch too. Lindsay would be contractually obligated to film a four-way scene with real porn stars, completely nude, alongside her co-star, James Dean, who was also a real porn star. Lindsay shrugged it off. She was tough. She was capable. More than anything, she was eager. Right up until everyone started disrobing. Lindsay Lohan couldn't see Paul Schrader, but she could hear him, and he was pissed. Her body went stiff, frozen with nerves in the closet where she was hiding. Her hands wandered to the belt on her robe in the darkness. She yanked on the ends, tightening the knot around her waist, as if somehow she could make it so snug that the film crew could never pry it off of her. Lindsay knew her delay tactic could only last so long. The other actors were already stripped down to their birthday suits. Her co-star, James Dean, plus two other porn stars brought in just for the occasion. She hoped the darkness of the bedroom would hide the two other women. She hoped the darkness would hide a lot of things. Schrader stormed over to the closet. Now he was the one who was screaming from the other side of a door. She signed the contract. She knew this was coming. Schrader was right. Lindsay was on the hook. It was just one continuous take. One voyeuristic shot of her naked body next to other naked bodies pretending to. 
A shiver crawled up her back. She slowly emerged from the closet, and the eyes of the production crew followed her to the bed, and they held their breath and waited for her to drop her robe. She didn't. Lindsay sprawled across the bed instead, like a teenage girl playing Katie Heron in Mean Girls again. She crossed her arms defensively and dug her fingers into her robe, and as she dawdled, the sky outside lightened. Schrader fought the urge to chuck his clipboard across the set. They had to shoot the scene at night. Lindsay had delayed it for so long that daylight was overtaking the darkness. If they didn't film the scene in the next hour, they'd have to fork over another day's worth of rental fees for the set. This was a micro-budget indie flick. They didn't have that kind of cash to spare. And Lindsay piped up. She had an idea. Did they know the Julia Roberts trick? The crew blinked in response. You know, the one where the whole crew gets naked with her for a scene so that it's not awkward. Not a single person in the room had any clue what Lindsay was referencing. What movie was she even talking about? And why would she want the crew to get naked when she could barely stomach her co-stars being naked? Schrader's eyes flicked to the window. The sky was getting lighter. He didn't have time to weigh the absurdity of Lindsay's so-called acting technique. He unfastened his belt, unzipped his fly, and let his pants drop to the floor. And then, his boxers. Lindsay could hardly believe her eyes. She forgot for a moment that this had been her suggestion. The unspoken obligation hung in the air. It was her turn. Either disrobe now or maybe never make another real movie again. Her robe collapsed into a pile next to Paul Schrader's pants. She bristled when the cool air swept over her body. And for the next 14 minutes, she didn't think about anything except the task at hand. Lindsay Lohan didn't think about the task at hand when it was time to promote the canyons either. There was one thing that Paul Schrader forgot to secure within her contract. He never locked in that she would make herself available for the film's publicity campaign. Lindsay gave a verbal promise to him, of course, and that was about as valuable as the minimum wage they paid her. Lindsay even ghosted the glamour of the Venice Film Festival where the canyons debuted on August 30th, 2013. Schrader shifted the premiere from the Locarno Film Festival specifically to accommodate her schedule. As he later vented to the press, quote, for the last 18 months, I have been a hostage of my own choosing to a very talented but unpredictable actress, unquote. Other directors and studios took notes, and nearly 10 years would pass before Lindsay got the chance to take the role in a major film production again, assuming that Falling for Christmas even makes it onto Netflix's home screen in late 2022. The Canyons just wasn't the narrative that Lindsay Lohan wanted to focus on in 2013. Instead, she was spinning out of control, lost in her own cyclone of chaos, again. She was fresh out of another 90 days in rehab, court-mandated rehab, of course. The stint was just another line in her criminal record. One of many infractions in a list so massive, it could fill a modern-day burn book. A list so massive that it ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands.
Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcasts because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. Double Elvis.